This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. Uh, welcome to the first in our series of fall colloquia for the Center for Studies in Higher Education. I'm Michael Nacht. I'm interim director of the center. And it's really my pleasure to welcome everybody here. We expected a fairly good crowd, and we haven't been disappointed. I know you're here for lunch. I understand that. <laughs> um, but before lunch, uh, we have some terrific uh, presentations uh, to hear and watch. And I have a brief four-hour introduction of our speakers. So <laughs> sit back and relax. Actually, I'm going to be very brief because you know these folks very well. Skip. Just give our names. Yeah, just our names. Their names. Their names. Just the names. They're up there, Michael. (laughs) Just read them. So I have to say something. It's part of my upbringing. So Chancellor Bergenau, you know, uh, was the ninth chancellor uh, here at UC Berkeley till 2013. He now has a distinguished chair in physics and material science, his home disciplines. He was a very eminent uh, experimental physicist at Yale and Oxford and Bell Labs and MIT, Dean of Science there and President of the University of Toronto before being Chancellor here. And he's a professor in the Public Policy School as well. What he does in his spare time, it's his business. Um, His colleague, uh, Henry Brady, is a Dean of the Goldman School. This is his eighth year and a very eminent political scientist in political participation, voting behavior, political methodology, and many other fields. And uh, Henry has been working on aspects of this Lincoln project, which Chancellor Bergenau will discuss. They'll both discuss aspects of it. Obviously, the issue is the future of the public research university, which is, of course, dear to all of our hearts. So without further ado, but before, one more comment, because I probably won't get a chance again. Uh, just coming attractions, there's a material on the table in back of you about some of our forthcoming sessions. We, we're mixing it up, different kinds of sessions, different locations, different subjects. The next one is actually next Tuesday. Ed Lacey, who's a sociologist at UC Davis, is going to talk about industry-university partnerships in the biotech area, uh, another important subject. And then later in the month... Uh, President Morishita from Cal State East Bay, a very dynamic uh, uh, higher education leader, is going to talk about public access to higher education. So we'll have, I think, a nice mix of seminars and just consult our website for further details. And with that, I'll turn it over to Bob Bergenau. Great to see everyone here, and I want to thank you so much for coming out to listen to uh, Henry and myself. Uh, it's nice to see such a large crowd, although I see my department chair here, uh, and he knows we're used to large crowds because he got me to teach uh, along with Alessandro Lanzara, sophomore physics to scientists and engineers, and we have 540 students. So I'm so, so, uh, sort of used to, to, uh, to big crowds. Um, so th- this is, uh, to a certain extent, going to be a progress report on the Lincoln Project, which is a uh, project which Henry and I and... and Another set of people, a whole bunch of people you'll get to see. Oh, sorry, I don't need it. Thank you. Okay. Sorry. Yeah. Okay. Uh, have been involved in for the, for the past three years, uh, basically looking at the situation for public higher education and specifically public research universities at a national level, trying to understand what the dynamics have been, uh, what are the forces that have been acting on public higher education and ultimately trying to figure out pathways forward that will enable us to uh, guarantee that the United States will continue to have great public research universities, that those universities will be accessible to the entire population. That's a sort of fundamental part. Uh, And that they offer the same quality of education as uh, the education obtained by that very small number of privileged people who go to the elite private universities. Uh, The origins of this... Uh, project uh, that came out of a dinner that Leslie Berlowitz, the former president of the American Academy of Arts and Sciences, Bob Haas, whose family name is well known uh, here at Berkeley, and I had in San Francisco. It was mostly actually Leslie trying to raise some money for the academy from from Bob, frankly, and I was (laughs) there to sort of referee. And and, uh, 
but during this, the dinner, we, uh, since Leslie was, you know, the American Academy sits on the Harvard campus and it's dominated by Harvard and MIT people, so it has a very sort of private, elite private university kind of sense about it. Uh, and, uh, but Leslie was trying to sort of break out from that and, and uh, look beyond. And so we inevitably, I mean, if anybody who's interested in education comes to California and they talk to someone in a leadership role, you inevitably start talking about the situation that University of California has found itself in. Uh, and that then led to a discussion about, well, that's the situation in California. We knew it was, for example, worse in Colorado, better than some other states. So we thought we should just see if we can assess what is happening quantitatively at a national level because so much of the conversation about budgets and higher education is dominated by whatever people's particular political prejudices are uh, and there has not been enough fact-based uh, information and we're not gonna make progress and figure out how to move forward uh, unless, we actually, unless it's actually fact-based uh, both locally and, in an, at a, and at a national level. Um, so uh, therefore, uh, we decided to put together this project Let's see, next slide. Or do I have control? Good. Okay. At that dinner, uh, we decided to put, this, put together this project, uh, and importantly, at the dinner, Bob Haas committed to fund half of it. <laughs> so, <laughs> that's not trivial. It turns out, if you ever decide you want to do a project at the American Academy, or the National Academy for that matter, but the American Academy, you get welcomed. Then you work out a budget, which in this case was about $2 million, and, and then you get a hunting license to go and raise the $2 million. That's literally true, so you can hire the staff, et cetera, right? So uh, one of the things that I think was illustrative of how much importance is given to this is uh, uh, I actually ended up doing the fundraising. It took six weeks to raise the $2 million because there are so many people. I mean, it's the easiest fundraising. I wish I could, raise, could have raised money that easily for Berkeley as for this project because there are so many people serious, people, foundations who are uh, concerned about public higher education, that it was basically very brief conversations with, uh, with, with people. Uh, I want to cite two people. I already did Bob Haas. The second one uh, is Tom Siebel of Siebel Scholars fame, who also, he, he we didn't even ask. <laughs> he actually volunteered uh, to a significant amount of money. Uh, and then the next person whose money we didn't take was John Perez who wanted the state to contribute significantly to this, we actually did not take that money because we wanted to be as politically neutral as possible. And indeed, one reason I wanted to go forward with the, National, the American Academy is it's not connected to the government in any way whatsoever, right? So, so we could be uh, completely independent. Uh, the name Lincoln Project, actually, that came from, from uh, Leslie Berlowitz. And it was, it was around the time of the 150th anniversary of the Morrell Act, uh, which created land-grant universities, including Ber UC Berkeley. Uh, and so it seemed appropriate. And although we haven't used this language, in some way what we need is we need a 21st century Morrell Act. But as you'll see in the end with our current thinking, uh, which by the way is by no means final, we're completely open to creative ideas. Uh, this is not a closed book by, by any means. Uh, that, that, uh, uh, that the solution is going to inevitably require a compact between everyone who depends on us having a healthy and inclusive higher educational system, okay? as opposed to having the federal government just put up all the money, or state government, or what have you. Okay. Um, one of the advantages of the American Academy as a base for this besides their beautiful quarters on the edge of the Harvard campus, uh, is that uh, the very broad base of the membership. And so uh, let's say, I mean, other academies I haven't belonged to, like the National Academy of Science, it's a great institution, but it's all scientists. And it was clear to us that we needed a broader base. The American Academy, there's some, look around and I see some members here, uh, has people that uh, go all the way from uh, multitudinous, countless Nobel Prize winners in science to great people in the humanities. In fact, the last project I was involved with at the academy was the study of the humanities. Uh, and, but it also has people involved in public, po public policy. It has people, uh, philanthropists. It has uh, musicians, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, in fact, uh, 
one of my sort of more fun events is at an induction ceremony. Uh, I was sitting in the front row with my wife, and I said, hey, that's Paul Simon's father up there. <laughs> Unfortunately, it turned out to be Paul Simon, <laughs> who still sang a nice song. But, but if I ever needed a measure of my own age, right, <laughs> I literally said that was Paul Simon's father, right? Anyway, so OK. So, so all the right, and Daniel Day-Lewis, uh, Clint Eastwood, uh, 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 and, and, uh, uh, and uh, Fred Weissman, et cetera. So it's a very broad-based group. Uh, in general, for American Academy committees, except for if you need particular expertise, then the membership of American Academy committees is drawn from the American Academy. Okay? Uh, and so most of these people are members of the American Academy, but not all of them, because there was particular uh, pieces of expertise that we thought we needed. We wanted, uh, of course, we have some number of presidents or former presidents of public research universities, like Dave Brunmeier, who was uh, very sadly passed away uh, during the course of this uh, study, uh, et cetera. We have private university people like uh, uh, Shirley Tillman from Princeton and, and Larry Bacow, who's also a data guy uh, from Tufts University. He's now on the board of Harvard. So, uh, so we have an array of public and private university. We have data people. Like, think of Henry, besides being an administrator, being a data person, actually invaluably so, and, and Mike Hout. Uh, we had a number of business people. Uh, uh, in particular, well, I won't go through the whole range. I already mentioned Bob Haas and Tom Siebel. One of my favorite, it turned out just uh, people I got to meet that I'd never met before was Patrick Doyle, uh, who's the president of Domino's Pizza. Now, if anything's relevant to students at universities, it's pizza. <laughs> I have a particular affection for uh, Patrick because when he became president of Domino's Pizza, uh, he appeared on national television and he said, I know why you're not buying Domino's Pizza. And he said, the reason is it doesn't taste very good. And so he said, now I'm president, I'm going to make sure Domino's Pizza tastes good. So that's the sort of kind of thinking and marketing that we need for public higher education. Criticize whatever you want. We're going to make it better. Okay. So anyway, okay. Oh, and also critically, and this was really quite educational, I have to say. We of course ultimately uh, boast we need change in state government policies, but it's our strong view, as you will hear later, that the federal government needs to take more responsibility than it has to date for public higher education. So we wanted people with who understood both state and federal uh, politics. And so uh, among members of the academy, we were very fortunate to have Phil Bredesen, who was governor of Tennessee for eight years, uh, and deeply committed to higher education, but also a realist. He had formerly been mayor of Nashville, was it? Nashville. Yeah, Nashville. So somebody had been a city mayor who'd been governor for eight years. Uh, just a point about, uh, about, about uh, Phil. Is uh, he's a Democrat in Tennessee. In his reelection, he won 91 out of 91 states, <laughs> counties, pardon me, which is unbelievable. All 91 went for Trump. <laughs> so that tells you a lot, actually, but that shows the skill of Phil uh, Bredesen. He's a really a major uh, participant in this and also a continuous reality check on we academics who tend to have a sort of often unrealistic view of how the world actually works. And Phil Bredesen is a very blunt man. And I cannot tell you the number of times he insulted me during the whole time period. But it was fine, because he was correct in each case. Uh, then we had Jim Leach, who's a moderate Republican university professor, plus a 30-year uh, Midwestern Iowa congressman. Uh, Kay Bailey Hutchison, this very distinguished uh, senator from Texas. Uh, and then uh, I in particular felt that the sort of left-wing pro-union part was not properly represented. And we managed to convince George Miller the day he stepped down this, from Congress to join us. And he's been incredibly invaluable as well. So a very balanced uh, people politically. So of course, we're academics. And therefore, we have to produce scholarly publications. Uh, and we did, uh, five of them. And you can ask, we're quite proud of these and gotten a lot of praise for them. Uh, and you can go to the American Academy website, look up Lincoln Project, and you can get all five publications for free just to print them out. Uh, and they have a lot of the data that you're going to see, plus much more. 
uh, including recommendations, et cetera. We think these are very nice publications, but I have to say that if that's all we produced, I mean, I produce lots, fortunately, I guess, journal articles in physics, right? I don't need any more journal articles, uh, or op-eds for that matter. Uh, so this is not about publications. This is about strategies of how to move forward. And so in some ways, the hardest part of what we're trying to do is beginning now, which is how do we actually affect change? We have some ideas, but we're, as I said, completely open. So now we'll go over to give, show you some of the data, things that we learned. Go ahead. Great. Uh, here's so, the, yeah. Give me the, thank you. So, by, just a story about Patrick Doyle. So we were discussing how we talk about uh, the cost of higher education. And we're mentioning that, of course, we tell people what the full sticker price is. But, of course, there are steep discounts. And he went, you do what? That's how you market higher education? He said, I don't tell them about the most expensive pizza they can buy. I tell them about the cheapest pizza they can buy. Uh, so I thought that was an interesting difference between the private sector and the public sector um, and indicates some of the problems we have with respect to our marketing, to say the least. Uh, this is a map that shows the number of private, very high and high research activity institutions by state. Carnegie uh, categorizes universities by their level of research activity. The highest level is very high. The next level is high. And then there's just research universities, the remainder. This is just the first two top categories. And the point of this is I want to contrast this in a minute with what is true for publics. So there's where the privates are, and you can probably name a lot of them in the various states. But notice where there are no very high or high research activity private universities. Just to name some of the states, Michigan, Virginia, Wisconsin, Iowa, Arizona, and Washington. Well, luckily, there are great public universities in those places. And the, and the thing here, I'm just going to go back and forth. I mean, look at that versus that. One of the first things to know about public higher education is it's the backbone of higher education in America and not just sort of at the wholesale level of lots of education. It's at the very direct level of doing the high-quality research that needs to be done in America if we're going to continue to have a vibrant economy and doing the, the, the vibrant uh, work also in the cultural area and the humanities and so forth and making sure that America continues to be a, an interesting place. Uh, Carol, by the way, we have a seat for you up here that we've been saving, and you're welcome to come up here. <laughs> okay. Um, so that's the first thing to know. They're just really important. And in fact, this gives you some idea of their importance. The number of, this is about 2012, these data, similar today. Uh, the number of undergraduates, private, about half a million, uh, and public, about 2.7 million. You know, I mean, just to give you an idea, remember that Stanford, for example, across the Bay, great university, has 7,000 undergraduates. We've got about 28,000, four times as many. Uh, so it's, they just don't have the scale to provide the amount of high-quality, uh, cutting-edge education uh, that really is needed in America. Even at the graduate level, where you, you can see there's a sort of advantage for the privates, proportionally they do better, still it's 615,000 at the publics and 288,000 at the privates. By the way, this is again the VHRA and the HRAs. So, you know, just in terms of sheer scale, the publics are incredibly important. Uh, let me just talk a little bit about this because it may not be that interpretable, but basically this shows you over time. This is 87, this is 2011. This is the privates and two different categories of them, and this is the publics. And, you know, not surprisingly, they're just a lot higher in terms of number of students given what I just said. And also, this is the AAU public. The AAUs are a subset of the VHRA, the very high research uh, uh, activity universities. It's the ones that are just sort of really the, the real top elite. Berkeley is a member. Uh, and I think there are six UCs that are AAU members. Um, and so then there's the public HRA, excluding the AAUs, then the non-AAU, public VA, uh, VHRA, and so forth. Um, and the important thing to note here is that the publics keep growing, so do the privates, but the scale is just entirely different. Um, here's the next thing. 
Here's the expenditures per full-time equivalent student. Now, this includes all expenditures. You can decide to break this down by the teaching expenditures, and it looks exactly the same. But the point is that just to show you that the environments are quite different at these various places. Here's the AAU privates, which are now up to about $140,000 per full-time equivalent student. Uh, here's the publics, and by the way, there's a mistake here. The third one up here should be actually public, not AAU public. Uh, but the important thing to note here is how much more money at the same level. If you go line by line, you'll find out, for example, the AAU privates versus the AAU publics. The AAU privates are $140,000 per full-time equivalent student, $50,000 at the AAU publics. So that's a factor of about three. If you go to the non-AAU privates, very high research activity, it's about $50,000. Uh, and it's about twenty to 30000 for the non-AAU public VHRAs and non-AAU public HRAs. So in other words, there's just a lot less spent at the publics. One way to think about it is we're a lot more efficient and effective. Indeed, there's an economics literature which asks, how come public universities are more cost-effective than private universities? I mean, most economists do not think that the public sector is a way to get efficiency in the provision of services. Turns out there's one place at least that socialism really works, and that is higher education. And the reason, by the way, seems to be that we're constantly being disciplined, if you will, uh, by the fact that we have to deal with state budgets which these days are coming increasingly, increasingly competitive, and therefore we have a lot of cost discipline, and the privates, especially the elite ones, don't, and I'll show you why in a few minutes when I show you what their endowments look like. Uh, they have this neat gimmick where they go out and there's lots of money from private donors who don't seem to care very much, interestingly enough, private donors who have made their money by being cost-efficient and effective give money to universities that are not at all cost-effective. And so if you're a private donor with a billion dollars in the audience, first of all, talk to Bob and me afterwards, but second of all, uh, don't give your money to Princeton, Yale, Harvard. First, they don't really need it as much as we do. And second of all, they're not going to make that good a use of it, by all indications. It's a bald uh, assertion, but it's true. At the margin, they are just not as effective and efficient with their money. Here's another thing that uh, we do, is we provide access. Uh, here's the percentage of low-income, middle-income, pu private publics. Again, VHRA, HRA. Uh, middle income, high income, and what you note is basically these figures versus this figure. So the, all VHRA, HRA, the privates are much more likely to be high income, the public's much more likely to be low income, middle income. Uh, undergraduate minorities, number per institution, graduate there, the privates start doing pretty well. I think anybody who spends time trying to recruit minority students to graduate programs knows exactly why. Uh, I run a public policy school. Princeton offers an absolutely full ride to almost every student they admit in their public policy school, and we're scrambling for cash and trying to make sure that we can try to offer something that's even vaguely reasonable. I must say that one of the glories of my school is we actually get people who decide to turn down Princeton and Harvard and much better financial deals to come to our school. That's sort of nice. Um, okay, here's the endowment story. Uh, so this is AAU private right here in red. This is not AAU VHRA, HRA private. The important thing to note is, look, skyrocketing upwards over time. This is from 90 to 2012. Uh, so that's just skyrocketing. This is the publics down here. Yes, they're increasing, especially this is the group we're in right here, which is the AAU publics. Uh, and it's good that we're getting bigger, but extrapolate these lines, okay? And then extrapolate this one. Uh, it doesn't look like, in fact, we're catching up, and that's a problem. Um, by the way, it's worth noting that these endowments are being created with substantial public subsidies because donors who give money to public and private universities, either one, uh, get tax write-offs. Uh, they can get a, uh, 
lower tax rate because the of the philanthropic deduction. And those are considerable subsidies to private universities. The other kind of subsidy, the major one, is they also don't pay taxes on the income they make from their endowments. Now, I'm not advocating that they start doing either one of these things because we hope to build our endowment here at Berkeley uh, by using the same mechanisms. Uh, but I will say that it suggests that you might ask about what public purpose should the private serve if they're getting such extraordinary subsidies from the public? And indeed, some calculations suggest that Stanford gets two to six times more public subsidy per student than Berkeley gets. So what's the public university in the Bay Area? Try this with your friends. And they'll say Berkeley, and you say, no, it's Stanford, actually. They're much more public than we are because they get a lot more public subsidy. It makes you wonder about how are we going to think about the future of public higher education under those circumstances. Well, what's happened in the last 20 years with respect to state funding and tuition revenue? Uh, this is the AAU publics. This is the non-AAU public VHRAs. They're the same kinds of lines, so they're basically the same story. It's interesting to note there's two regimes here. This, if you draw a line straight up from about 2000, 2001, you'll see that the lines sort of change at that time. So that, in fact, for a while, public universities were doing rather well because we were increasing our tuition. But, in fact, state funding was staying roughly the same. That's true over here, too, tuition going up. So we were doing well. Not only state funding per student, but also getting increased tuition. Around 2000, that changed because state funding dramatically declined. And, of course, then we really had to rely upon tuition. And what you'll find is past around 2000, the degree of rise in tuition just about matched the decline in state funding dollar for dollar. Actually, at the UCs, it was less. Our tuition went up less than the drop in state support. So we're less well-funded, even if you include the tuition funds we now collect, than we used to be per student. Okay, so what does this mean? Well, this means the revenue sources have changed dramatically for public universities, public research universities. It used to be that state appropriations, this line in the reddish color is about 2,000. It used to be that was the major source of funding for public higher education. Notice how that's declined. That's the same story I just told a moment ago. And this, by the way, is the percent of uh, total support that comes from these various sources. So it used to be that the total support that was provided by the state was about a third in 2000. Uh, it's now about half that at about 16 17%. Uh, so that's a dramatic decline. What's happened? Tuition has gone up. So it used to be tuition wasn't so important. Now tuition's much more important. That's the basic story here. You do see that the publics are relying more upon private gifts and grants, uh, but it's, it's going up slowly but not dramatically. And then, of course, government funding, federal funding, has been sort of up and down depending upon the economy, sequestration, and a whole lot of things going on in Washington and elsewhere. So, so what we face is the percent change in state support for public higher education has gone down by 30% since 2000. Dramatic decline, uh, really making it hard for us to cover our bills. Uh, why is that so? Well, this gives you the state general fund expenditures in 2014. This is across all the states. Um, by category, uh, elementary and secondary education, of course, is a big expenditure at states. Uh, it's important to note that one of the reasons for that is didn't used to be so. It used to be so that property taxes across the country, there was local funding. There was a sea change about 30, 40 years ago where there were court cases that were brought um, that led to uh, people thinking that there should be more equality across the various school districts in states. Therefore, the states took on this function. Of course, in California, we also had Prop 13, which limited property tax revenue. And so the net result is the states take this on. But what that means is that's a new expenditure category or an enlarged expenditure category for the states that helps crowd out higher education spending. Another one that crowds out higher education spending is Medicaid. All a very worthy, important purpose. Uh, but 
Uh, it's something that's expanding. That's part of what Obamacare does is expands Medicaid. And furthermore, Medicaid comes with maintenance of effort provisions. So the states actually have to make sure that they continue to put money into that. Higher education, Pell Grants, loans, does not come with any maintenance of effort condition for the various states. And, and Bob is probably going to talk a little bit about that. So we suffer from the fact that what the states have done is they said, great, you're getting into the business, federal government. That's lovely. Thanks for bailing us out. We're going to put our money elsewhere. And furthermore, universities have the power to tax, called tuition. And furthermore, if I'm a politician, I have the lovely position of being able to criticize the university for raising tuition. Oh, those terrible universities raising tuition while I'm cutting the budgets of the universities. Uh, corrections is another one uh, that's grown a lot. And just to give you some idea, state correction spending has grown much faster than education spending over the last three decades. That's true for elementary and secondary, which has grown around 69%. Uh, higher education, 5.6%, hardly at all, and corrections, 141%. There are now 11 states in which the corrections budget, what we're willing to do is we're willing to say to young people, we're happy to send you to jail, not so sure about whether you should go to college. So that's the situation we find ourselves in right now. Uh, let me go to this. Uh, one argument that's been made is the problem is that we're bloated, we're too costly, uh, and that's the difficulty. Well, here's the drivers of rising tuition at public research universities. It's almost entirely decreased state support. Some increased spending on construction, some increased spending on administration and support, some increased spending on instruction, but mostly it's decreased state support. And as for the administrative bloat argument, this is really sort of hard to read. Let me read you a statistic that will make it easier to understand what's going on here. The Delta Cost Project, which is the most extensive uh, piece of work that's been done on the costs of higher education, and part of which we replicated for the Lincoln Project, by the way. We extended and replicated it. Shows that between 2002 and 2012, there were 30 fewer staff per 1,000 FTE students at public universities. 30 fewer. Whereas at private universities, there were 137 more staff members. Administrative bloat <laughs> is much more a problem in the private universities than it is in the public universities. So, the net result is higher education's in trouble, and Bob's now going to tell you about our regional meetings in which we learned a lot. Let me just summarize what I've said. It's vitally important for research and education much more cost-effective than private, much more accessible, much less endowment. Since 2011, forced to raise tuition because of state, since 2001, forced to raise tuition because of state cuts. Competition for state funds is fierce. You cannot expect the state is going to bail out the University of California anytime soon. And administrative bloat is not really the key problem. Bob. <laughs> Thanks, Henry. That was great. And of course, we have much more data than you just saw. And if you go to the publications, you can see an enormous, credible amount. Um, so one of the things that we did in this project is, uh, and I want to thank my department chair for giving me the flexibility in my teaching to be able to do this, uh, uh, which is... <laughs> That's a hint for future. But anyway, the, <laughs> the, 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 we basically toured the country. Let me say, by the way, I greatly, both Henry and I, but I in particular forgot to mention that the co-chair of this project is Mary Sue Coleman, who uh, was a longtime service in public higher education, president of the University of Iowa, and then for 12 years, president of the University of Michigan. Phenomenal person, now president of the AAU. It was just such a privilege, uh, a really gifted administrator. Uh, I mean, I'm not the shyest person on the planet, but after about the third meeting, I would just say, okay, Mary Sue, meeting's yours, and just let her run the meetings. Just an incredibly talented person. Uh, and now, actually, with her as president of the AAU, uh, we're hopeful that that will be very valuable for us in the next stage in, in, uh, in DC. She'll be here on campus. Uh, uh, in, a, uh, in a month, and she and I are meeting with 
President Napolitano. It should be an interesting meeting. Uh, so one of the things that we did is that we held regional meetings all around the country. Uh, so we had meetings in Michigan, of course. We had meetings here at Berkeley or in California. Uh, but also, we met with the leaders of all of the New England universities and politicians from New England. Uh, it was interesting empirically, there was a particular interest in this project in the South, and especially the Deep South. Just empirically an interesting phenomenon. Uh, and in fact, uh, the, uh, the state legislature in Alabama insisted, asked for us, and distributed our documents to every single legislator in the state of Alabama. Frankly, I wish California was as enlightened. It's very interesting. So we learned a lot of interesting things about attitudes to higher education and politicians and their openness, et cetera, right? So uh, anyway, so we had meetings in, in, in Georgia, in Tennessee, uh, as I said, in New England, in the Midwest, in North Carolina, California, et cetera. And those meetings are ongoing, actually. So we have one coming up in Iowa, et cetera. Uh, Texas, Texas was particularly interesting because they were like in the middle of a crisis right at that time. Uh, my best experience, most amusing experience was in Louisiana, where the week I was there, the, the governor discovered that his predecessor, Bobby Jindal, had basically bankrupted the state and not told anybody. So a new governor came in. So the same thing happened. The governor then announced, well, there's only one place where there's any flexibility. So he said he was therefore going to, to, to close the universities at the end of April because he couldn't afford to pay people's salaries, and he was going to cancel scholarships. This happened in real time I was there. While I was there, and we were meeting with state legislatures, and you say, how could that happen? But it did. <laughs> it turned out the president, who's very gifted, uh, Alexander King, came from California, then went to the state legislature and said, you need to understand if you close the university on April 30th, not a single one of our football players is going to complete the spring <laughs> semester and therefore, I have to inform the NCAA that we're canceling LSU's football season next fall. This happened. I was there. This is not a, this like sounds so crazy. And it took one hour, one hour for the legislature to reverse the decision and to refund the university. It's, it was pretty funny when it happened, but actually, it's a tragedy. It's actually a tragedy, if you think about it, right? And this isn't some crazy apocryphal story. It happened in real time while I was there, and I watched it, and I met with their regents, and met with their, said, how, you know, what do you, how can this possibly have happened? But it did, anyway, okay. So, uh, in spite of some really horrible experiences like that, we learned a variety of things. One is, I know people would like to think this, you know, this isn't what's happening, but our conclusion uh, is that state disinvestment, first of all, it's a national phenomenon, that's not surprising, but almost certainly it's irreversible. Of course, we'd like to see state funding double or triple, but it's not going to happen. Or at least if you plan your university budget on the assumption that we're going to recover, you're going to destroy your university. That's unambiguous. Okay. As we saw, the disinvestment has been largely compensated by increased in tuition and greater reliance on out-of-state and international students, but you've seen the consequences of that politically, for example, here in California. Right? I mean, this is not a sustainable strategy. It just, you know, just isn't. We can't increase tuition indefinitely. And we, I mean, well, the extreme limit is University of Vermont. University of Vermont is now 80% out of state and international. So they're not serving the state at all. Then they really have privatized, right? And that is not what we want for public higher education. Okay. So that's carried to the extreme. Commit, one of the really interesting things is that the commitment to access varied widely wildly between different states. That is, we have a really deep commitment in California. I was very proud of California by the time we were finished uh, in, in our commitment to ensuring that anyone who's talented enough to get admitted to UC, that we'll manage their finances for them. Uh, it turns out in the country, actually, California is number one, literally number one. But there are only about five states which fall into the same category as California in terms of the level of funding that we have through Cal Grants, et cetera, right? Uh, and there are states where they're, they, they use words like Georgia, for example, has no need-based financial aid. So it's, so it's put in the language of, we want to keep the best and brightest in the state of Georgia. Similarly in Louisiana, 
Then you ask about what the racial profile of their students is. And since this is being filmed, I'm not going to talk about my interpretation of these financial aid policies. Uh, but let me just say that, that probably in terms of access, financial aid is need-based financial aid and enhancing need-based financial aid is the single most important aspect, right? And it varies phenomenally across the, uh, across the country and it has huge implications for social justice and social equality. And actually, Henry and I and Charlie Eaton and Mike Hout and Mary Sue Coleman now have been doing a major research project on this, trying to get data for, for financial aid across the country. And Charlie Eaton in particular, a uh, graduate student just finished, and what's her name? The, she's from Toronto, I ought to know it, but anyway. Shay Shay. right. Uh, we now have a lot of information which is not in these reports, which we will subsequently publish, okay. Okay. One thing we found, though, that was really uplifting is just the incredible talent leading universities across the country, public universities, and how dedicated these people are. It was, it was uplifting and how creative they've been. We call it optimizing in the local context. Okay. Of, of course, uh, here in California, our governor thought that online education was going to save higher education as we run around, around the country. Uh, for undergraduate education in particular, that just simply isn't true. It turns out IT is important, but it's important in terms of keeping track of students' uh, financial well-being and keeping track of whether or not they're taking the right courses and proceeding towards their degree satisfactorily by using IT in a very sophisticated way. For example, um, Georgia State, which is a leader in this, an inner city university in Atlanta, 60% underrepresented minorities, raised the graduation rate for African-Americans from 24% to above 50%, and they removed any racial inequalities whatsoever. So at Georgia State, just by using IT in a sophisticated way, they removed ethnicity or race as one of the variables that affects ability to graduate. It's spectacularly good, actually, and we can, we can actually learn from that here at, uh, at Berkeley. Every university is looking to philanthropy as their answer. In fact, when we were in Virginia and we met with the presidents of all of the major Virginia universities and we asked them, what's your financial strategy? It was philanthropy, philanthropy, philanthropy. I don't know if there's that much philanthropy in the state of Virginia. So it's going to be a major part, but it's not enough. Okay. Uh, and obviously, universities have to continue to be as efficient as possible. So now let's look at some of our recommendations. I'll try and go quickly through these. First of all, obviously, we have to be as efficient as possible. Secondly, we need to form alliances so that we don't do duplicative things. Again, trying to spend our dollars as efficiently as possible. We need to explore and pursue new revenue streams. I'm going to come to some suggestions, but we welcome, welcome yours. Okay. Uh, everyone, has, all public universities have to improve their fundraising. There's tremendous variation in, in the, the skill set at different public universities in fundraising. <laughs> We're very, you know, a few of us with Michigan and Virginia out in front probably are very skilled at it, uh, and, and uh, we've done very well here at Berkeley. There are others for which philanthropy just hasn't played a role in their, in their budgets, especially second-tier universities. Um, we're going to have to pursue multi-partners. Uh, I'm going to come to the support or almost total lack of it for public higher education from the business community. Uh, we have to tell them we're willing partners, but uh, finally, uh, it turns out that we decided in this study, pushed by Mary Sue more than me, frankly, not to look at governance. Frankly, governance is a major problem. I don't have to tell anybody in California that governance is a major problem, but it's different in every single state. Obviously, in Virginia, if you read the news, you know that governance has been a disaster there. Uh, and uh, we have states like Colorado where they've reduced the state funding down to 3%, but they still control the tuition, <laughs> right? So you have a 3% stockholder controls your budget. Uh, so, so we did not study that deliberately, but governance is a major issue. Maybe some separate project will, will look at that. Uh, but as some of you may know, a group of us wrote a, I think, study that was published through the Center for Studies in Higher Education on governance in California and recommended changes. We couldn't even get the regents to read it. 
even to read it. Okay, anyway. The issue of, of financial aid, as I just indicated already, is a hugely important one. Uh, there's about 20 states that have no need-based financial aid, so low-income people are on their own. And it's not surprising that they have very low access rates and very low graduation rates because people run out of money. It's one thing they learned at Georgia State is the students who are dropping out, especially students of color, it had nothing to do with their academic abilities or amb ambitions. It was entirely financial. They just ran, they ran through their Pell Grant and there was nothing left. And they couldn't uh, sustain enough jobs. So we need a, a major advance in financial aid. Tracking student performance, that's what they did brilliantly at Georgia State and some other universities. And obviously we need to include transfer pathways. We do that pretty well in California, but we can do it better. That's one way of lowering the cost of higher education, is to have two years of community college. Okay. For states, the phrase that we heard all of the time was balance wheel, which is, I mean, you heard this in Georgia, for example. Every time there's a funding crisis in the state, and they've got corrections, they've got Medicaid, they've got K through 12, et cetera, then the balance wheel is public higher education with the rationalization, well, they can just increase tuition, right? And this needs to end. We, one way or another, need to convince states that public higher education uh, deserves to be treated as fairly as the other, as the other uh, sectors. So at the minimum, we need state budgets to be stabilized. Of course, we would like to see the cuts restored. Uh, at the minimum, they need to be stable, uh, the budgets need to be stabilized. Uh, and we need to establish long-term funding goals. That's for states. We need to create state incentives for corporations to support scholarships. I'm going to come to be more explicit about that soon. Uh, basically, if California is the prime example where, where uh, um, corporations are the first order free riders in the public higher education system. They pay very low taxes and they contribute very low, especially the high tech corporations, back to public higher education. And that needs to change. Uh, we, again, need to provide comprehensive financial aid to low income students. We need to encourage improvements in the community college pathway, uh, transfer pathways. And they did a study at Vanderbilt. Approximately 10% of the administrative budget uh, in universities is used up in satisfying government, unnecessary government regulations. If they would just relax the regulations, we could already save 10% of our administrative budgets. Now we come to the federal government. So among the countries that we compete with, the United States is now the only one where the federal government does not contribute directly to the support of their great public research universities. And that's because of the state that's, public education has always been viewed as a state responsibility, not a federal responsibility. But other countries have broken through this, even when that's been the case, and the federal governments have recognized that the health of the public research university system is essential to the health of the country, both economically and otherwise. So we need, in our view, the federal government to begin to play a role. Of course, we're happy about federal Pell Grants and student loans and funding for research, but that doesn't help us actually with our teachers in the classroom and paying their salaries. So we need mechanisms for the federal government to uh, uh, to become involved, and I'm going to give you a specific example. I'm actually quite optimistic about this, depending on what happens <laughs> on January 20th. Okay. Uh, we need to incentivize corporate and philanthropic contributions to public higher education. That's clear. And we want to encourage partnerships through challenge programs between state governments, federal agencies, private philanthropists, and public research universities. If we cannot rely on the state, the state is not a reliable partner. We need to find new partners, but it has to be in such a way that they do not exercise control and that we maintain our public character. That's part of the challenge, mostly with the federal government, actually. Okay. Um, so then we have some, some examples. I'm going to go through several specifically, so why don't I uh, skip this. But the bottom one, review and reduce unfunded regulatory mandates, <laughs> would be a huge gain for us. So uh, what about the private sector? First of all, we need the private sector to step up. 
I, I had uh, met while I was chancellor with some presidents of Silicon Valley corporations, and they were complaining that we weren't graduating enough engineers. So I said, well, we could think about expanding the engineering school, uh, but we can't afford it because we were already so struggling. So I said, you know, maybe you can step up and help us. And sure, they were willing to put up, I don't know, $10,000 per graduate or something like that. So I actually did the arithmetic of what it would take to maintain the quality of our engineering school and increase the number of graduates by 20%. That turns out to be $750 million. That's the actual cost, right? If you say, well, we need new, we need new research buildings, we need to hire more faculty, et cetera, et cetera, right? And they basically blanched at that. <laughs> but something has to change, okay? Uh, we need to promote partnerships. Again, I'm gonna give uh, with private foundations. I'm gonna give some specific examples. Uh, we can do better on licensing policies. That's one thing that we determined by our meetings with uh, corporate leaders is that, that the flow of information uh, from universities to, to, to corporations and ultimately to the marketplace uh, isn't as smooth as it could be, and so we need to do a lot more work on that end. Of course, we would like to, um, the, the corporate leaders to be advocates for us. We had difference of opinions in, in the group. For me, I think that's letting them off the hook. I mean, it's nice if they go to DC or if they go to Sacramento and say, oh yes, give the universities more money. But they're the ones who have all the money, right? So I have a quite, so I think mostly what we've asked, for example, uh, Silicon Valley corporations to do is to go to Sacramento and I'd be happy to see how well that has worked. And, and, uh, uh, and said, you know, that's what we want them to do. I, personally, I don't believe so. Okay, so let me give four specific suggestions, let's see. But you can have as many as you want. One is, we have a very specific idea for a federal, state, private matching endowed chair program. It's basically the Hewlett Chair is generalized to the entire country. And in the Hewlett Chair program here at Berkeley, it was the Hewlett Foundation and private donors. For the country, it would be the federal government, state government, and private donors. And I'll elaborate on that. Repatriation of offshore funds to strengthen in, uh, uh, educational infrastructure, I'll give you some numbers for that. Okay. Industry-sponsored undergraduate scholarships, I'll give you a specific idea. And matching programs for need-based financial aid, as I said. In at least half the country, we're in, a, we're in a crisis mode in terms of financial aid for low-income students, and we need to find a way beyond that. So the basic idea of the endowed chair program is that the federal government would put up a billion dollars a year for the next 10 years. These funds would be distributed nationally according to population, and they would be the first third of the funding of a $3 million chair. They would be matched by the state, that would be a requirement, and matched by individuals, exactly analogous. And the payout would be used not to build new buildings, et cetera, it would be built, it would be used for core uh, needs, scholarly allowance for the professor, graduate fellowships, and faculty salary support. So this would be $1 billion annually for 10 years distributed according to population. State would match federal dollars, private donors. Uh, this may sound fanciful. This is actually the idea which has got the best reception uh, from both Republicans and Democrats, and uh, we're waiting until January 20th. I met with the key senator, Democratic senator, who asked George Miller and me to actually draw up the legislation. So, so this has a chance of working. And for Berkeley, over 10 years, if I just reduce it, it would be 250 well-funded chairs, and therefore 250 new graduate fellowships. This would be extraordinarily impactful. It would be impactful on every, uh, on every, uh, uh, on every public university around the country. So I'm quite hopeful about this. Okay. Of course, this is hardly an original idea to target the offshore funds. Currently, American corporations with California corporations playing a dominant role are holding offshore $2.4 trillion. And I talked to more than one president of high-tech companies here in California, and, and I said, the American economy needs that money. <laughs> one corporation in particular, just this is an example, they have $21 billion of cash, $6 billion onshore, 
15 billion offshore. So I said, what are you doing with the 15 billion? Well, they have a hedge fund. <laughs> and the hedge fund is actually making more money than their products now. I mean, this is obscene. So I said to this president, I said, this is obscene. You, know, you need to repatriate that money. California needs it. And he said, we're not going to pay taxes. Okay, this mindset has to change. If there's been a lot of talk in Washington of repatriating this money at a lower tax rate and using the, the tax funds so obtained for infrastructure. Our argument, which we've been making in Washington, is what infrastructure is more important than education? And so if we got just 1% of this, that would be $24 billion. That would be transformational for, for public higher education. Okay. Uh, Industry-sponsored scholarships. When, when a corporation, it's even true for universities, does a search for a new employee, hire a search firm, they typically pay the search firm one-third of the person's first year's salary. So we've been floating the idea, and actually Janet Napolitano has really grabbed on this, which I'm very happy about and is marketing it. If you hire a Berkeley graduate, then you give Berkeley one-third of that Berkeley graduate's first-year salary as a scholarship for an undergraduate student. Okay. So this would be a simple way, it's tax-free for them, right, of acknowledging the importance of the university. This would work for publics or privates. I had an elaborate conversation uh, with, uh, about this with the president of Carnegie Mellon, who turns out to be even more charged up about, about uh, corporations stealing his faculty, et cetera, et cetera, right? Uh, this would resonate with both publics and privates, okay? So I think this is real. I again ran this by Silicon Valley people who said, sure, $5,000 per employee. And I said, then we'd rather not have it at all, <laughs> right? I mean, it has to be a realistic amount of money. I think it is realistic, and as I said, Janet has, Napolitano has grabbed onto this idea and is marketing it, okay? And finally, one way or another, we have to solve the problem of access across the country. As I said, we're in a relatively favorable situation in California, but there are not many states, there's only five that are really like California, to increase need-based financial aid across the country, and we need uh, matching programs. Uh, in Canada, they've done this extremely well. Uh, and it was interesting, this uh, matching for need-based financial aid came from a, from a conservative government in Ontario, quite conservative, almost Trump conservative, okay, and the liberals canceled it. So the politics of low-income financial aid is complicated, okay, and, and it doesn't, so if nothing else, that demonstrates that this has to be bipartisan, and you don't necessarily know who your friends are, right? You shouldn't just make assumptions about Democrats versus Republicans or, you know, Bernie Sanders versus uh, whomever. Uh, that, 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 that there's lots of experience to show, uh, and we found this in Georgia, I found this in Georgia for undocumented students. The advocates for undocumented students were, were Republicans, fairly conservative Republicans, not, not the Democrats. So the politics of low-income students, et cetera, it's very complicated, and we have to not make sure we don't come in showing our political prejudices, uh, and that we be open, and there are some surprises as we learn going around the country. Okay, so with that, we need to thank the president, current president of the academy, Jonathan Fanton, uh, and then we had phenomenal staff, John Tessitore, Samantha Carney, who just amusingly left our project to go work at a private university who could pay her a lot of money. <laughs> uh, but she's a great person. Yeah, Eliza Berg, Dorothy Covell, and uh, then Beata Fitzpatrick, who was an associate chancellor here at Berkeley, uh, operated as a consultant. She wrote, actually wrote document pamphlet number four. So with that, thank you. I'm sorry we went on so long, uh, but, but. And everyone should feel welcome to leave. We have a, sorry, we have about 10 minutes for uh, questions and comments and in the Berkeley tradition, corrections. <laughs> so why don't I call on this man? I think it's John Douglas, actually.
question relates to uh, the proposal. My question relates to the proposal uh, that uh, Hillary Clinton has out now in terms of providing states uh, direct funding uh, for public universities. How does this fit into your game plan, and do you have an, an opinion about it? Uh, you know, I think she's she's going in the right direction. Uh, I wrote an op-ed in the LA Times, uh, critical of Bernie Sanders' approach, which went directly to Hillary. It turned out. Uh, and so sort of our views got, are actually reflected in, in her policies. So, I, you know, we would welcome the opportunity to work with her administration, assuming it's her administration, to optimize it. Sure. Anand uh, Sahai uh, from ECS. Uh, so I have a, a question about some of the data. So if you think about the universities as reservoir where there's lots of um, undergrad students getting educated and graduate students, there are also reservoirs of faculty. So the numbers, I'm just curious, what is the like tenure lines, right? How many, what is the total number of tenure lines at these uh, private research ones versus the publics in terms of you know, expertise for the country? Uh, well, I, I certainly can't tell you that off the top of my head. Is this working? Yeah. Uh, and... Uh, I, I, just, I mean, I'm sure we have the data in our database. I can't tell you off the top of my head. If you want to, we can correspond and get you that data and so forth. What's your particular concern, though? I mean, obviously, there are more tenured faculty per student in the privates than there are in the publics. I mean, that's one of the ways we save money. I meant resources per FTE instead of FTE of faculty. I see. They're more efficient in publics and educating students, but the resources per FTE, what are those looking like? I see. Per FTE faculty. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, we could get that. It's not the way we cut the data because we were more concerned about the students and so forth. In fact, actually, I'm glad you asked that question because one positive thing is we've assembled a lot of data and done particular cuts, which were ones that were, we thought, relevant to this project. As I said, we realized that we hadn't done a good enough job on need-based financial aid, and so that's why we spent the summer uh, uh, doing it. We actually funded it out of our pockets, <laughs> in fact, was sufficiently important, uh, and and you know that's converging, and so there are probably other uh, cuts of the data which which people might suggest, and and as I, as we said, we have a lot of information. Right. Well, I'm Yoshiro Azuma from Sofia University in Japan, and also affiliated to Lawrence Berkeley National Lab here. Uh, in Professor Browdy's discussion, I was quite surprised and intrigued to hear that uh, Stanford is so well funded by, uh, publicly, by public funds that it's more of a public university than Berkeley. Uh, it's what's called a tax expenditure, to be clear about it. So oh, it's I not see. like it's direct funding. Uh -huh. What it is is that when people give money to the university, mm -hmm. they mm -hmm. can take a tax deduction, which mm -hmm. reduces their taxes, and we think of, in public policy world, is what's called a tax expenditure. Because somebody's got to pay those taxes. It just mm -hmm. happens to not be the person who gave the money to Stanford. Mm -hmm. It may be the person who, who, who goes to Berkeley. Oh, I see. But um, maybe generally speaking, uh, in terms of principle, uh, a private university may have to be put back to their place <laughs> in, in, uh, in terms of not relying as much on uh, such public measures uh, as uh, their own en endowment. Well, that's a, probably a qu questionable, but uh, uh, I wonder about that issue because the situation here is probably quite unthinkable in most, most uh, other countries. I think the question that has to be asked is since private universities do get these tax expenditure dollars, is what should the government require of them in return for that? Uh, so, for example, the UC system is constantly required to do all sorts of things by the state legislature on the grounds that we're a public university, and therefore we're told we've got to do this and this and this and this, and yet Stanford gets a pass. So Stanford, for example, has 7,000 undergraduate students right now, has not really increased the size of their undergraduate class in a long, long time, and we've got enormous pressure to increase the size of our undergraduate classes and indeed have just agreed to do so at an egregiously low per dollar amount for each student, $5,000 per student from the state. Um, my sense is that somebody should go to Stanford and make them that deal, and if they won't take it, tell them they better take it. And they won't take it because they would never do it at $5,000 per student. They wouldn't. I talked to the provost at Duke recently. He said, oh, we might do it at $25,000 per student. Yeah. So, but we've, I, I want to sort of 
can see this is a major issue for Henry. Uh, <laughs> so, 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 so we've been scrupulously, we were scrupulously careful and have been throughout not to criticize the privates. It's, it's, it's not going to advance public higher education to, to uh, be you know, throwing darts at the rich publics. And furthermore, uh, rich privates, pardon me, and furthermore, you know, we focus on five or six institutions with incredible endowments, right? But, but in fact, if you go to Boston University, they have the same challenges we have because Boston University is a tuition-driven university, right? So. Yeah, thank you. I'm beginning to understand that. Fair enough. Hello. Um, I'm a current graduate student here at Berkeley. My name's Dax Vivid. I also came here as an undergraduate, um, so I'm a big Bear fan. I was curious about the Lincoln Project and describing the financial relationships between um, the university budget and academics, as well as with the athletics department, because I think Cal in particular as a leading public research university also has a, um, a famous athletics department. Did that come up with the Lincoln Project? Uh, so we did not look at athletic budgets specifically. Obviously, they have to be kept tight control of. Uh, and, and uh, you know, typically as a percentage of, I mean, of the challenges that we're facing, they're a very small percentage of the, of, of the challenge. But they, like a lot of other parts of the university, need to be monitored very carefully. I'm Bill Lacey from the University of California, Davis. <laughs> Indeed, I wanted to see. I wanted to see how well it's done. <laughs> um, very interesting, fascinating study. Um, I'm studying the Australian higher education system, and it's experiencing some of the same things. Very startling data on many on many fronts. What surprised you the most about this study? For me, actually, it was the very first graph, and, he, and Henry showed one with the very high research and high research. If you just show very high research, I mean, uh, in, you know, in my, my past life, I was at, at Yale and MIT, uh, so Connecticut, Massachusetts, uh, and then uh, now in California. So you tend to, so people in my kind of world tend to think of the elite privates as playing like a dominant role in higher education. Then when Henry produced this graph and showed that the country was basically white, right, that to first order the elite privates, which get all of the attention, are irrelevant in terms of education in the country, that it's the publics that overwhelmingly educate the people, the, the, the people who are the workforce, who are the voters, et cetera, of, of, of this country. And that, that's the case that we need to make properly, especially in Washington, if we want the federal government to begin to take some responsibility. I think the second thing is, is on these uh, listening meetings, too. I mean, obviously not every place is perfect, and there's lots of problems with administrations around the country with respect to higher education. But nevertheless, the degree to which people are trying to think creatively about solving real problems is quite amazing. We met some extraordinary people uh, like the president of uh, Texas at El Paso, who's trying incredibly hard to make that a great university that can actually serve underrepresented minorities. And she's been tremendously successful with it. And you just, you're in awe of these people, what they've done. Please give a well, nice hand to our speakers. Thank you. Thank you so much. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.